The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. We are a people who are desperate for God, aren't we? And uh, if that's not something that you've come to realize yet, I pray that you realize it sooner than later, uh, that we need God, that we're desperate for God. And in times like that, we need to be reminded that God's character provides us with stability. Even in the, the midst of the turbulence of life, God is sovereign God is wise, God is loving, and God gives to us each day what he deems best. And there's nothing that can change the character of God. And I I pray that you believe that, that you believe that there's nothing that can change the character of God. There's a song that's titled Day by Day, and it says, Day by day with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. And even during times of of pain and toil, we can find peace and rest if we look to the God that we trust in. And this is what I want to remind you about, and I I could repeat that story many times over in this congregation right here. You know, just looking out at the at the different rows of 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 pews here, I, I could I could name one by one just different members of our congregation who've experienced trial during this last year. But even during times like this, there's a God that we can hope in. And there's a difference, there's a difference between the way that the world experiences trials. And the way that the Christian experiences trials, there's a difference. I'll just give you a short list of a few differences between the way that the world responds and the way that the Christian responds to trials. Number one, we don't fear like those who don't have hope. We have hope as believers. Back in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 8, Isaiah predicted an Assyrian invasion on the land of Judah He was actually commanded to write out in large letters that this invasion would be swift and speedy. It was coming quickly, and Isaiah would live to see the events unfold. And in chapter 8, verse 11, he says this, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. Don't, Don't live like the rest of the people around you, Isaiah. Yes, you're going to experience this trial, but you're not to be like everybody else around you. You're not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. We we don't have a fear like the world does. The greatest fear that we have as believers is a fear of God. God is the greatest threat. And if we're found in him, the greatest threat has already been taken care of. (laughs) I'm found in my God. I don't have a fear like the world has fear. We also don't 
lose control like the world loses control because we realized that we were never in control to begin with. (laughs) We trust that the God of the Bible is completely sovereign. He's over every particle in the universe. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Exodus 4.11, the Lord said, Who has made man's mouth or who has made a mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm in control of all these things. So we understand that God is in control, just as in control today as he was last week, as he was last year. We also don't pray like those who don't have hope. Unbelievers can pray, but Scripture lets us know that, that even unbelievers can pray fervently, but there's nobody else on the other end of the line. The classic example is the, the prayer of uh, the 450 prophets of Baal who danced around the altar, cut themselves. And at the end of the day, there's this sinking feeling that nobody's really listening. They had no hope. Jesus tells us that, that when we pray, we pray differently than the world does. Matthew 6 verse 8 says, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. We come before a God who knows, before a God who hears, before a God who who responds to our prayers. And as we approach our sovereign God, we also need to remember that we're coming before a loving Father, that we come before a Father who loves us, who knows what our needs are. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We come before a God who cares. You also don't hope in this life only like those who have no hope, those in this world. Our hope is not just in this life. The world might have a hope that that things will get back to normal, that that I'll live till I'm 100, but we have a hope beyond that. Our hope is not just in this life. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If we've hoped in this life only, we are of all men the most to be pitied. My hope is not just in this life. My hope is in the life to come. Titus 3, 7 says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our hope is in eternal life. And we need to be ready to share that, that hope that's within us to those that ask us a reason for the hope. 1 Peter three fifteen, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And finally, even if we die as believers, we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. One poem says, No longer must the mourners weep, nor call departed Christians dead. For death is hollowed into sleep, and every grave becomes a bed. And today I've titled this message a response, a Christian response to trials. Because as, as Christians, we, we respond to trials differently than the world does around us. We, we respond to trials differently. We don't need to give in to fear, to frustration, to the flood of discouragement that those who aren't believers give themselves over to. We have a hope, and our hope is in God. 
We looked at that last night. I'd encourage you to, to look at that message, Psalm 42, that our hope is in God. We have the cure for despair. And we find that in the passage before us in Philippians chapter 4. If you're not there, you can flip in your Bibles to that place, Philippians chapter 4. And these exhortations are, are critical to the church if we desire to stand firm in the days ahead. Philippians chapter 4, I'll start at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you today, Lord, recognizing you as the God of all the earth. Recognizing that you are the God who can grant us stability, Lord, even in the the darkest and deepest of trials. That you can grant us stability even when the world gives way. When the mountains are cast into the heart of the sea. Father, that you are with us. That that, that your, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And that your grace and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Father, help us to be reminded of who you are. Help us to be reminded of the hope that we have in our God. And Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We find uh, three commands in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord, to be gentle towards all men, and, and not to be anxious. And it could be argued that these commands should be looked at separately, but, but they really present before us a, a similar picture. It's really talking about the kind of attitude that we're to have as believers. And it's, it's an attitude that we're to have at, at all times. We're to maintain, maintain this attitude. To always be rejoicing at all times. To be gentle to all men. Uh, not to be anxious in anything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, making our requests known to the Lord. All times, all men, in everything, no exceptions. These are the attitudes that are to encompass the life of the believer. And if we're to stand firm, it's necessary that we have these attitudes. The Philippians faced their own set of, of difficulties. Uh, they were faced with uh, opponents. They were suffering for their faith in Christ. If you look back at chapter 1 of uh, Philippians, chapter 1, look at verse 28. Look at what it says here. Paul says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. These are believers that are suffering. In verse 30, it says they're experiencing conflict. That would have been a source of discouragement, frustration for these believers. We're only trying to do the right thing. They're just trying to stand up for the Lord, but they're they're suffering. They're, They're facing persecution. They're being attacked. And Paul writes this command to them, to those who are suffering. He also writes this letter to those who are distressed over the, the condition of others. If you look back at chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 25 to 26. One of their own, Epaphroditus, came to minister to Paul. And while coming to minister to Paul's need, he became sick. Look at verse 25. He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and ministered to my need, because he was longing for you all 
and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. The trip from uh, Philippi to, to Rome would have been about a thousand miles, proved to be almost fatal for Epaphroditus. And the Philippian church was concerned over their brother. This is a brother that we care for. We've, we've heard that he's, he came close to death. He was on the brink of death. And this would have been a cause for instability in the life of the Philippians. And on top of that, they're also concerned about Paul's future. If you look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They were concerned about the Apostle Paul. What was going on in the Apostle's life? Apostle Paul was suffering in prison, imprisonment. And this, the cause of his imprisonment had been made known to, to many. And he was not sure how this imprisonment would end. He says, this imprisonment that I'm under right now can end in, in one of two ways. I could either be delivered by being set free from the, the, the bonds that I'm in right now, or I could be set free in death. He says, I don't, I don't know which way this is going to go. But I do know this, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm not sure which way this is going to end for me. And the, the Philippians were concerned about the apostles. So all of these things were, were pressing down upon them. Their own suffering, the suffering of, of others, their, their brother Epaphroditus, the, the impending death of, of the apostle Paul. They, they don't know how these things are going to end. They don't know the future. And they could have easily made an excuse for being emotionally unstable. I mean, wouldn't it just be natural to lose your joy, for anxiety to set in, to blame others for the circumstances that you're facing. But there appears to be no hesitation on Paul's part to tell these saints that I want you to act differently than the world does. Let's look at the first command. He says in verse 4, chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And just just in case you missed what I said, again, I will say rejoice. (laughs) We find these words for joy 16 times in the space of just four chapters in the book of Philippians. And this is not the kind of attitude that you'd expect someone to have who's on death row. And Paul says that he rejoices. I even rejoice. I'm telling you to share your joy, share my joy with me. Over in chapter 1 and verse 20, as we already pointed out, Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is on death row. And even though his life hangs in the balance, he says, that's not an excuse for me not to, to have joy in the Lord. And he's concerned that the Philippians be joyful. And this is a, a continuous command. It's, it's not that you should rejoice every now and again, but, but this should always be the attitude of your heart. And with a few strokes of his pen, he moves joy into the realm of morality. Your, your present circumstance should not change what's lying underneath. And in this command, there's this possibility of living a joyful life, kind of like a, you know, the, the bitter waters that were turned sweet when you know, the, the, the tree was cast into it in, a, in, in, in the days of, of Moses. We can find in any circumstance that, that our joy can, 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 can be produced even in bitter circumstances. And I find it, find it interesting that this word for joy was used even in 
the darkest of times. Look over in uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll start at verse 4. Listen to what he says here. He says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity and knowledge, in patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is the kind of joy that you can have in any circumstance. Look, look what he says, even sorrowful, even while I'm still, I mean, the tears may still be coming down my eyes, but on the inside, there's a joy that the world can't take away. There, there's a confidence that the Lord gives me in the hope of eternal life. And your joy can be constant if it's anchored into someone who never changes. And the reason that Paul could command their, their joy to be persistent is because their joy is not anchored in their circumstances. Look again at Philippians chapter 4. Where, where is this joy to be in? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If, if, if Paul commanded your joy to be in your circumstances, there's no way that he could have made this command. How, how can you command your joy to be in your circumstances when your circumstances are always changing? He says, if you're going to rejoice always, it has to be in somebody who never changes. Rejoice in the Lord. The Lord does not change. They're to be found in what's stable. To put your anchor down into the Lord, the unchanging God, the God who is immutable. I, the Lord, do not change. And the better we know our God is the better we can experience stability in our lives, even in the, 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 the changing circumstances that we find ourselves in. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8.10 says, is our strength. The joy of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Number two, we're to remain gentle towards men. Look at verse five. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. It's a passive command to let this happen. The phrase could be rendered though, be gentle because the display of this attitude is what Paul is calling for. When he calls for gentleness, this word gentleness, it's epe case. It's an interesting word. It's defined as yielding, being kind, being forbearing. This word is used in two other passages that help us define it. It's, it's contrasted with being violent, contrasted with slandering men. This is the opposite of a vindictive, malicious, cruel spirit that can often manifest itself during times of stress. It's the attitude that, that chooses to suffer with grace. One dictionary defines it as not the strictness of legal right, but consideration for one another, being satisfied with less than your due. To be gentle is not to seek your rights, to retaliate for wrongs done. It's to let your rights go in order to consider others, and that's not easy, is it? Gentleness is not something that's rewarded by men. But there's a proper time to exercise your rights. And uh, Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, he gives an excellent series of questions to ask yourself before you exercise your right. Number one, will exercising my right honor God and show the power of the gospel in my life? 
Number two, will exercising my rights advance the kingdom of God? Or does it only advance my own personal interests? Will exercising my rights benefit others? Am I doing this for the benefit of others? And number four, is exercising my rights essential for my own well-being? We know that even the Apostle Paul uh, used his rights as a citizen to avoid the sword, right? To avoid beating. There's a proper time to exercise your rights, but that doesn't ever give you an excuse for being ungracious with other people. We're reminded in this verse that we're to have the kind of attitude that, that Christ had. And we looked at that in uh, chapter 2 of uh, Philippians, to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ had a humble attitude, even before those that treated him wrongly. He called even on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the temptation for us is to, to try to make things happen for our benefit. Every sin will be paid for. And that's something that we can trust in. That the, the, the vengeance belongs to who? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. God will make sure that every sin is paid for. Either paid for on the sinner or paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. Every sin will be accounted for. And the question comes, well, how am I to do that? How am I to, to be gentle towards men? Knowing how men treat me. Knowing that men do me wrong. How, how, am, I to, how am I to do that? Look at the, the end of the verse. The Lord is near. How, how am I to do that? It's with the, with the knowledge that Christ is near. And Paul has already mentioned a, a number of times in this epistle that the coming of the Lord is near and that the Philippians could be faithful, even to, to be faithful to the Lord because the Lord will be faithful to them until the day of Christ. There, there's coming a time when Christ will return. They're to be sincere and blameless, chapter 1, verse 10, until the day of Christ. They're to hold fast the word of life in the day of Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 20, he's mentioned that we're to be eagerly waiting for a Savior to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is near. There's coming a time when the Lord will return. And this is a similar encouragement that's given over in James chapter 5 and verse 8 where it says, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is near. As believers, our eschatology matters. We, we, we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ, and we know that when he returns, he will make all things right. Eschatology is not some dusty doctrine that you never interact with. It's something that gives you hope. The Lord is coming back. That should have an effect on the way that you, your, your attitude and the way that you treat men around you. The Lord, the Lord will return. I, I don't have to make sure that everything gets right in my time frame. The Lord is coming back, and he'll make sure that everything is right. I trust in the Lord who's soon to return. Never lose sight of the Lord's return. Christ sees what you suffer. Christ sees what you go through. And Christ isn't missing a thing. Christ will make sure that everything is made right. And we need to stand firm on the return of Jesus Christ. And number three, we're to refuse to be anxious. Look at verses six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This uh, section here contains a, a prohibition, a prescription, and a promise. The prohibition is the negative side. Be anxious for nothing. Don't do that. The prescription is the positive side. Let your request be made known to the Lord. Do that, right? And the promise is the result of obedience. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Let's look at the prohibition. What's the prohibition? Don't be anxious for anything. 
Actually, the, in the sentence in the, the original uh, Greek, it's in nothing be anxious. In nothing is placed first for the emphasis. In, in nothing. There, there is no circumstance that gives you the, the excuse to, to just allow your heart to become anxious, to become overwhelmed, to, to be sunken down in despair. There, there's no circumstance. In all contexts, in all situations. And uh, there's, there's a good worry, a good concern, a healthy concern that we should have for others. But that healthy concern can oftentimes uh, become unhealthy and sinful, sinful anxiety. And the root word of this word for, for anxious, it means to have a split mind, to be divided, you know, to allow your, your cares to take you away. You know, to be concerned is, is one thing, to care is one thing, but to be carried away by those concerns is something different. In Scripture, it's used for, for worry, to have this divided mind, to be worried about your protection, worried about your provision, worried about the future, things that you can't control. And we need to be honest that there's, there's some things that we can't control, right? Let's, let's go deeper than that. There's many things that we can't control, right? I think we can go further than that. Everything is outside of our control. <laughs> There's nothing that we believe that, that we can fully control. God is the one who's in control. And you know what our problem is? Our problem is that we often think that we have control in the first place. That there's something that I can do to, to correct this. I can fix this. I can make this right. Just give me enough time. Give me enough resources. I can handle this. What is the truth? You can't. That's, that's why we, we, we lay them all on, on Jesus Christ. We have to cast our concerns upon him because he cares for us. I can't do this, Lord. This is too heavy for me to bear. And once we realize our limitations, then the cure for anxiety makes sense, right? Once you understand that I can't do this, where do you turn? To the one who can. Be anxious for nothing, but in the contrast... And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Why? Because he's the one who can handle it. Amen. I can't do this. Lord, I know that you can. That is the prescription. The prescription is prayer. We can be free from the, the sinful worry, anxiety, if we cast, continue to cast our anxieties on the Lord because he's the one who cares for us. Some of us have a headache this big and prayer is written all over it, right? Be made known. Speaks of a habitual practice, coming before the Lord, letting our requests be made known. So many times while I was with Chuck this week, it's just, you know, just constant prayer. Just, you know, you you talk for a little while and then immediately you're just right back into prayer. And then you talk and then you're immediately right. It's just like like this constant casting off. Every time the, the, the anxiety builds up, it's like, okay, I need to let that go. I need to let that go. It's just like this constant offloading of anxiety on the Lord, just constantly in prayer. And it says, let the Lord know about it. I find it interesting that Paul uses the word for know. I mean, certainly God knows, doesn't he? I mean, God knows what your concerns are. I mean, if Paul knew what their concerns were, if they knew what their concerns were, certainly God knew what their concerns were. But listen to this. The answer, answer to anxiety is not that God doesn't know, that you need to inform him. The answer to anxiety is that you need to know that God knows. <laughs> it's, it's a reminder to yourself. No, I know that God knows about this. God knows what I'm going through. God, God's aware of this. God cares for me. I'm just constantly referring back to the Lord. God knows. God knows. 
The only way you can worry about nothing, to be concerned about nothing, is that you're comforted by the God who knows everything. That I'm constantly turning it over to the Lord. This is where the cure lies. This indicates that as Christians, we're to communicate with God about everything. Everything. Big things, small things. We're not to wait until the anxiety falls upon us and we're trembling before God. It's just like with everything, I'm just constantly in communication with God. Just a rich communication with the Father so that when anxiety creeps in, that that we're pushing it right back out. Because we know who we trust in. It's like the the child who's afraid of a dog's bark, but when her dad puts her on his shoulder, she barks right back at the dog. (laughs) Because I know who I'm with. I know who I believe in. The Father makes a difference. We're we're casting all of these prayers onto the Lord because he knows the future. He knows what we go through. And you know what else? God has designed us to live in the dark about the future. You ever think about that? The the, the future is is veiled to us. We don't don't know what the future holds. We we pray. We pray with confidence. We pray, pray with trust. We're trusting in the Lord. God, we know that you can answer, but we don't know how you're going to answer this prayer. Just like the Apostle Paul, he says, I know I'm going to be delivered, but I don't know which way it's going to go. I could be delivered by life. I could be delivered by death. I don't know how this is going to turn out. And God has designed you to live in that space in the middle where you don't know. Lord, I don't know what the end of this is going to be. But even though God has shielded the future from us, he's given us all access to the past. So we can look back on our lives and say, I don't know what the future holds, but I can look back and I know that God has been faithful here. He's been faithful there. He answered a prayer over here. I can look back and see the faithful hand of God in my life. Even as I was talking to Chuck and he gave a testimony last night that that I don't know what the future holds, but I I know that when my daughter was born, she was born at two pounds and two ounces, I think it was. She was on the deathbed from the time she was born and I saw God's hand of faithfulness then And I can trust in that same God for the future. We're given free access to the past, which is why as we come with our prayers and our burdens and our supplications, that we also come, listen to this, with thanksgiving. Because God, I look to the past and I see all the ways that you've answered my prayers before. I look at all the ways you've been faithful to me before. And I can trust in the same God who was faithful before to be faithful in the future. God, I know that you are faithful and I give you thanks. I give you praise. You are a God who's worthy of thanksgiving. We can look to the past and then look to the future with with confidence. And then finally, we're given this magnificent promise, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. I just can't understand it. (laughs) it. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond my ability to figure it out. Beyond comprehension, I got this peace. Like, how do I have this peace in this situation that I'm finding myself in? There, there is no way possible. There is just no way on earth. And you're absolutely right. There is no way on earth that you could have that peace. And yes, it's impossible for men, but it's possible with God. <laughs> that God, beyond anything that you could understand is able to give you peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a magnificent 
promise. Peace. It speaks about harmony, order, stability. It's almost like you're undisturbed. God is called the God of peace. And here we have the peace of God. This peace comes from God. It's outside of this world. This is, this is unnatural. It's supernatural. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The, the, the world can offer peace when all the circumstances are right. Everything fits where it's supposed to. Oh, it's like, okay, now you can have peace, right? That's how the world gives peace. That's not how God gives peace. God, God gives peace when everything is out of order, flying all over the place, and God says, peace. <laughs> When the winds and waves are blowing, he says, peace. We have something that the world can't understand. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. If the world could give this peace, the world could take it away. But this is a peace that the Lord gives. And the world can't take it away. Why? Because it's guarded. (laughs) This is a peace that's guarded. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word for guard, interesting word, only used four times in the New Testament, is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32 for a battalion, a, a troop of soldiers that kept watch over a town. The Philippians would have been familiar with this sort of thing because uh, they were a, a Roman colony stationed with troops around, Roman troops. Soldiers that would have protected the city. And what this verse is saying is in the same way that soldiers gather around a city to protect it, that my peace will gather around your heart to guard you, to guard your hearts and minds. Literally, the peace of God will stand guard. As we make our requests known to God, as we're, we're pouring out our petitions to God, that God will surround our hearts with peace, guard you with his peace. In the midst of, of difficulty, you can have harmony, order, stability. In his book, Anxiety Attack, John MacArthur said, the real challenge of Christian living is not to eliminate every uncomfortable circumstance, but to trust in our sovereign God in the midst of every circumstance. There's no way to escape from the trials of this life. We, we can't, we can't get, get away from it. This is the world that we live in. Like I mentioned earlier, we live in a fallen world. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, this is the world that we live in. A world that's filled with conflict and pain and, and death. This is the world that we live in. We can't escape it. But the answer to peace, to be guarded, to have your heart guarded, is to place your confidence in the one who's in charge of all things. He can guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And did you notice this, that Jesus Christ is at the center of every verse? I'm not sure if you caught this, but, but the Lord is the centrality here. We're to rejoice in who? Rejoice in the Lord. We're to remain gentle because of who? Because the Lord is near. And who is guarding your hearts and minds? Where, where is your heart and mind guarded? It's in Christ Jesus. It's the Lord, the Lord, Christ Jesus. And I want to let you know this, that outside of a relationship with Jesus, you don't have these benefits. That, again, this is what makes the distinction between believers and unbelievers. What does the believer have that the unbeliever doesn't? The believer has Jesus. The believer has Jesus. And that's what gives us peace in the midst of the storm. 
We have Jesus Christ. And you can trust him right now, right where you are. If you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus Christ, we would plead for you to turn to Christ. We would plead for you to turn to Jesus Christ. And this is the only place where you can find peace. We have peace with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. The biggest problem for us has already been answered as believers. The biggest threat for us, that's already been taken care of. Where was the biggest threat for the believer taken care of? It was taken care of on the cross. You know what the biggest threat for you is? The biggest threat is the wrath of God. That is your biggest threat. It's the wrath of God. And where was the wrath of God taken care of? It was on the cross of Jesus Christ. When when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was not for his own sins. He went to the cross for the sins that, that we committed, for the penalty that we deserved. And when Jesus hung on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ. All of his anger and hatred against our sins poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. So that after Jesus Christ hung on the cross for those three hours, he could say, it is finished. And now there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The biggest threat for us was taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. So now for us as believers, we can look forward to the future with hope. (laughs) We can look forward to the future and have peace because we have a peace that the world does not have. We have a peace with God. That is the greatest news that could ever be given. And we would plead with you if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, that's what you need to be more concerned about than anything else. What is my state before a holy and a righteous God? Because one day I will stand before him and the Lord is near. We're those who can be joyful because the Lord doesn't change. We're those who can be gentle because our hope is in the Lord who will return. We don't have to be anxious because our hearts and our minds are guarded by the peace of Christ Jesus. And we devote ourselves to prayer before him in faith, knowing that he answers our prayers, that he is our father and he cares for us. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And as the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Father, you are the God who will not allow our foot to slip. The one who keeps us will not slumber. The one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Father, you are our keeper. You're the shade on our right hand. You're the one who protects us from evil. You're the one who keeps our souls. You're the one who guards our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forever. So, Father, we come before you. Lord, trusting in you to hear and to answer our prayers. And Father, our peace is found in you. It's not in our circumstances. And Father, we do pray for answer to prayer. Father, we pray that you would answer the cries of our heart, the cries of the the Brooks, the Landers, of the whole family, for Sophia. Lord, we pray that you would hear the cries of our hearts. But Father, we understand that our hope is not in what the world hopes in that we have a hope beyond this life, that our hope has been placed in Jesus Christ and in life eternal. Father, I pray that you would remind us of this great and glorious hope. And Father, that you would cause our eyes to look to you where our help comes from. You are our God and our hope is in the Lord. 
In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.